chapter three. Galatians chapter three. We're just looking at a handful of verses this morning, verses 26 through 29 in particular. We've been working our way through the book of Galatians. So thankful that in the Lord's kindness that last Sunday when I was sick, Tim was able to preach on Romans 5. So kind of the Lord, sweet of Tim to be willing to do that. Um, typically, that's atypical. Typically, we've been preaching through Galatians and then the other elders uh, preaching through 1 Samuel. So we've been going through those two books, New Testament, Old Testament. But this morning, we come to the end of Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. There's an outline on the back of the worship guide there, if that's helpful for you to keep an eye on. Write anything down that you'd like to remember. Galatians chapter 3, 26 through 29. If you're using one of our hardback Bibles, it's page 915. Galatians 3, 26 through 29. So hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord tells us there. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Okay, so this passage, just to kind of get our bearings, this passage is about assurance in the Christian life. So remember, there's these false teachers around Galatia. And what they're telling these young believers, now we understand these folks were believers, they were young Christians, these false teachers were telling them that that was not the case. They were saying, no, you guys aren't really part of God's people yet, because although you've trusted in Jesus, that's true, you also need to have the males in your household circumcised, and you need to keep some other parts of the law of Moses. So remember, circumcision was commanded in the Mosaic Covenant. There were a couple other things that they said too, but the point was they said, you're not made right in God's eyes by faith alone in Christ. That's, you need to have that, but that's not quite enough. You need to have faith in Christ plus some of these works, plus some of this obedience. And until you have that, you're not really part of God's family. So what does Paul have to say about this? These false teachers are shaking their assurance so how does Paul respond? And it's significant for us for a couple of different reasons. I think most of us at times as Christians struggle with assurance. So the things Paul's going to point out are going to be helpful weapons for us to utilize moving forward when we are struggling with our assurance in Christ. But, but we also understand that there's lots of groups, lots of so-called churches today that will tell people the same kinds of things that these false teachers were saying to these young Galatian Christians. So there's churches today that would tell somebody, hey, you, you have to be baptized before you're really part of God's family. So you, you've trusted in Christ, that's great. But you need to get baptized before you're really part of God's family. Or they would say you need to participate in confession, right? To a particular leader in the church. And until you've done that, you're not really part of God's family. Or you need to be made a church member or take the Lord's Supper. So what these young Christians were dealing with, this, this hasn't gone away. This is something that, that happens today. And Paul understands that, that what they need is assurance. They need to know that they're God's children. So how can they know? And how can we know? How can we have assurance that we really are God's children? Where Paul points their attention and our attention this morning to three particular things in this passage. That's what's listed there on the back of the worship guide. So first. 
He tells you to look at your trust in Christ. Second, he tells you to look back to your baptism. And finally, remember that in Christ, we all have the same status. So the first place Paul goes first, in order to gain assurance that you're God's child, look at your trust in Christ. Look at verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, right off the bat, we should note this. You might not have caught it, but you might have caught it. Why doesn't he say that uh, for in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God, right? So there's two genders. Why does he go with sons here? We might not know, you, you might know this, you might not know this, but in this culture in the ancient Near East, all the inheritance went to the sons, right? Unless a family didn't have any sons. So if an author of scripture is trying to communicate to people, you're going to get everything, you're going to get all the inheritance, then the most effective way to do it was to say, you're like a son in this way. So not just a general child. No, you're like a son. Sons were the one that got the inheritance. And we see that language of heirs down in verse 29. Look there. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So Paul wants Christians to know that, that all of us, male and female, all of us are heirs of the promises of God. So in the culture he's writing to, he needs to say we're all sons of God through faith. And, and we need to note, this was a pretty radical thing to say in this culture. So to say that a female Christian was a co-heir, the way that uh, Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 3, that a female Christian was a co-heir, or like what Paul is saying here, he's writing to male and female Christians, but he calls all Christians sons of God, that they're going to get all of that. That was kind of a wild thing to say in this culture, because women weren't seen on the same level. They weren't seen as co-heirs with men in, in anything, in any endeavor. And it's good to remember that the opinions of, uh, of humans will change over time radically. So this teaching, so in this culture, the New Testament documents would have been seen as pretty liberal when it comes to gender issues with men and women. Now, that is not the case anymore. So people today, our culture looks at these documents and says, man, it is so conservative. So you see, that's what culture does, though. Humans, we just come up with new ideas and we bounce back and forth. And it comes and goes and it ebbs and flows and that sort of thing. So what one culture thinks is really liberal, another culture will think is really conservative. The one who has never moved is the Lord. He's always had the same opinion about these things. And it's true. Jesus's ideas about manhood and womanhood have always stayed exactly the same. Praise God that we have unchanging truth. Okay, so in verse 26, we're, we're told all Christians are sons of God, and that makes us heirs. We're told that down in verse 29. So, so what is it that we are heirs to? Well, it's clearly something we don't have yet. It's something that's future. So the heir is an heir to something only until they get that thing, and, and then they're no longer an heir. They're a possessor of that thing. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. This is the way Paul says it there. He says, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So as Christians, we are heirs to something that we don't yet have. And we should take a minute to recognize this goes completely against the, the false gospel that's preached by so many in our culture of, of health and wealth. So you might be familiar with this kind of ministry where somebody says, yeah, for a Christian, 
you should expect to always be taken care of physically. So you shouldn't really get sick. You should have all your material needs provided for. You should expect to be well off financially. And there's lots of, there's lots of churches that teach that, that sort of health and wealth gospel. But listen, the, the Lord never gives us that promise, ever. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. Jesus says that we should expect some level of difficulty in this world the way our Savior did, who, let's remember, did not do so well physically. <laughs> Jesus hung on a cross, gave his life. That's not the, that's not the picture of, of health. And Jesus really didn't even have a home. He certainly wasn't wealthy. You might remember Luke 9, 58. He says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So as, as a Christian, God hasn't promised you an easy earthly life. He just hasn't made that promise to us. In fact, in John 16, Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. Okay, so all that to say, the inheritance promised to us in the gospel, it's future. It's this thing that's waiting for us. It's not something we get right now. Okay, so, so what is it? Well, you, you could read Ephesians 1 this afternoon. That's the chapter where Paul really talks in depth, probably talks the most about the inheritance that we have with the Lord. And he makes it clear that the inheritance in the gospel is this. It's eternal life with God apart from our sin. That's when the inheritance is when you really boil it down. So it's a thing we get, and then it's a thing that's taken away. We get Christ, but we're in that place without our sin. He takes away our sinful nature. And there really is nothing that could possibly be better than that. You know, Jesus is life. Everything in Jesus is life-giving. On the flip side, everything about our sin is death. It's life-taking. So one day as a Christian, we'll be with the Lord. We'll have Christ, but we won't have our sinful nature. It's hard to even imagine it, right? I was reading the Psalms this morning, and, and in one of the Psalms, I can't remember which one, but He's talking about the promised land, which, of course, we understand is a picture of heaven. And what he says is that the Israelites, it's like they were dreaming. That's the picture of heaven that we're given. The authors in Scripture, it's, it's like they're grasping at the, at the strongest images they can get their hands on to try to describe this, uh, this perfect situation where we're with Christ, we're apart from our sins. So, so that's the inheritance that, that we're talking about here in verse 29. But like verse 26 makes clear, it's only God's sons. It's only his children that get the inheritance. We need to remember that. No person is born into this world as God's child. No person is born into this world as God's child. Listen to John chapter 1, verse 12. And they were told, but to all who did receive him, talking about Jesus, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we aren't born into this world as God's children. Um, somebody uh, gave our kids a little plaque to hang up in their room when they were little that says, I am a child of God, which was really, really sweet of them to give us that thing. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. It is not accurate. <laughs> it's not accurate. My children, just like your children and you and me, we weren't born into this world as children of God. First John or uh, John 1 tells us that's a right that has to be given to us, and it comes through belief in Christ. It's not inherent. God has to make somebody his child. 
In fact, John 8, 44 tells us who our spiritual father is when we're born into this world. You're not going to walk into the Christian bookstore and find a plaque that says this. John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So being God's child, is, it's not something anybody can take for granted. No, we're born into this world opposed to the Lord. He has to save us. It's God who makes us his children. So how does somebody become God's child? Well, for the Christians here this morning, how, how did you become God's child? Verse 26 tells us, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So that's what makes somebody a Christian. It's faith alone or trust alone in Jesus Christ for salvation. That's what makes someone God's child. And remember, this is a sharp distinction between what the false teachers were saying. So what they were saying was, you're not part of God's family. You're not heirs unless you trust in Christ, plus do some of these good works from the law. But Paul was saying, no, that's not the case. He says it comes by faith alone, in Christ alone. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And this is where that illustration, so we've been thinking about adoption, right? We become God's children. What's that process called? It's called adoption. And this is where adoption really gives us a helpful illustration for our relationship with the Lord. Because remember, what Paul's been doing in Galatians a lot, same thing he does in Romans, is talking about justification. So that's law court imagery. The picture is that we're all guilty and we're sitting there as the defendant. And instead of counting us guilty, the Lord says, because of what Jesus did, I'm going to declare you to be innocent. And then we get to walk away free from the charge, not because of anything we did, but because of what Christ did for us. Okay, that's absolutely true. But here's where the picture of adoption is, is helpful for us. That picture of justification, that's not what a judge, at least on earth, does and is right to do. So we'd be a bad judge who looks at the defendant and says, I know you're guilty, but let's say you're innocent, maybe because of the good deed from this other person. That's not the way that the human justice system works, and it shouldn't work that way, right? That's a unique thing that the Lord was able to do with Christ on our behalf. That's not the way that it works in normal courtrooms. But see, adoption has this great picture that it does work this way. Because think about it this way. What the false teachers were saying was, if you want God to adopt you, you need to trust in Christ, but you also need to make yourself more like the Lord than you are now. So you need to kind of mess with your DNA and make your DNA match up to God's DNA enough, and then he'll, he'll adopt you. He'll make you part of his family. That's the kind of thing these false teachers were saying. But see, that's not the way that adoption works in this world. So that little girl that's waiting to be adopted, she doesn't have to try to change her DNA as if you could even do such a thing to match up with those adopting parents. You know, those adopting parents are adopting her despite what her DNA is. They're bringing her into their family. That's what the Lord does with us in the gospel. He doesn't change our DNA first. He doesn't say, if you'll be good enough, if you'll get your life on track in these ways, if you'll do these religious things, then you'll be good enough. And then you can be part of my family. No, no, he comes to us when we're spiritual orphans, right? When our DNA is entirely sinful. And he brings us into his family there at the front end before there's been anything good in us. It's only because of trust in Christ alone. 
That's so gracious of him, isn't it? The gospel is so good. Listen to what John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. He's talking about this exact thing about adoption. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. So, so all of that to say this, if you want to know if you're one of God's children, the question to ask is, am I trusting in Jesus Christ? That's kind of the answer that the Bible gives all the way through. If you want to know if you're one of God's children, if you have assurance of salvation, the question to ask is, am I trusting in Jesus Christ? Now, if, if you're not trusting in Christ, then you're not God's child. And of course, what that means is you need to trust in Christ so you can be adopted, so you can have your sins covered, so, so you can spend eternity with God apart from your sin. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, that's the decision for you to make, is to decide that you want Christ more than you want your sin, and to turn from your sin and, and put your full hope and confidence in Jesus to cover your sins, to make you right with the Lord. So talk to me or talk to one of the other elders about that, if you're willing to talk about that more, about trusting in Christ, coming to Christ. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. It's, it's not about your performance. No, the inheritance, it, it comes through faith in Christ, faith uh, apart from, from works. And what that means for us as Christians is that we might say, yes, I am trusting in Christ, and that's your assurance. You understand you're right with the Lord because you're trusting in Christ. But it's, it's good to be reminded some of us need to look at ourselves and our performance far less than we do now and to look at Christ far more than we do now. So, so in a lot of ways, the entire point of life is to get your eyes off of yourself and, and to get them onto Jesus. But see, even as Christians, sometimes some of us, especially if you have a sensitive conscience, you might sin in a particular way or in a particular area, and then you find yourself just staring at that sin over and over and over again. But see, passages like this reminding us to turn our eyes away from our sin. It's good to look at your sin. We do that every, more, uh, every Sunday in the prayer of confession. It's good to recognize your sin so you can confess, so you can repent. But once you've looked at your sin and seen it enough to repent of it, then the object really is to pivot your eyes and to look at Christ. One pastor that, that we had years ago said, for every one time you look at your sin, look at Christ 10 times. Something like that is a good principle, a good thing to try to follow. Don't look at your sin. Look, look at Christ. It's not about our performance. That's not what makes us God's child. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. This is the first piece of assurance Paul gives him. If you're believing in Jesus, then you're God's child. So look at your faith in Christ. But Paul does point these young believers to a tangible symbol of their faith in Christ. And, and this is our second point this morning, to gain assurance that you're God's child, look back to your baptism. Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So Paul's telling these young Christians that, that if they're worried about not being part of God's family, what they should do is look back to their baptism when they first became believers. Now, if you're here and you're not too familiar with the Bible or Christianity, baptism is this symbol where a new Christian is dipped down into water and then comes up out of that water. And it symbolizes being buried with Christ and raised to walk in new life with Christ. 
It's like that water is, is the picture of Christ's blood washing our sins away from us. It's what's taught in the New Testament that, that believers are, are supposed to do, to follow Christ in obedience, in baptism. Let me read you Romans 6, 3 through 4. It says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were baptized, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So that's the picture. You're being buried with Christ in death, and then you're raised to walk in newness of life. Now, it's not that the water is doing anything there. It's not that symbol is making us right with God. No, the symbol's pointing back to a spiritual reality that happened the moment we first trusted in Christ. Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And more than that, so, so putting on Christ there is trusting in Jesus. It's being united with Christ. It's getting all the benefits that, that Christ has for us. And Paul says that baptism is a picture of that. Well, it's interesting. In order to strengthen the Galatian Christians in their assurance that they really are God's children, Paul directs them to look back to their baptism. He said, why does he do that? That might come across a little bit as odd for us. Well, again, it's, it's because of the reasons we just stated, a Christian's baptism is a visible symbol of an invisible reality. The invisible reality is their connection to Christ through faith, but it's invisible. We can't see that, right? We can't see our faith. Baptism is a visible picture, a visible symbol of that. So, so think about it this way. With, with that bank failing in California a few weeks ago, you might have felt yourself, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't go and look because you don't need that anxiety, right? But you might have gone and looked at your bank account to see what the numbers are there and if everything looks good. But see, the, the numbers on that computer screen, that's not your money. You can't walk that computer screen into a store and show those numbers to the clerk and, and walk out with your merchandise. No, those numbers stand for a reality, which is, Lord willing, your money in the bank. That's the same kind of thing that baptism does. Baptism doesn't do anything to make us right with God. But it's a symbol, it stands in place of, it points back to the faith we have in Christ, the thing that has covered our sins, that, uh, that has made us right with the Lord. And it's particularly kind of the Lord to give us this symbol, because again, like we've mentioned, our faith in Christ is invisible. So a few years ago in Maine, I woke up in the morning and I smelled a really, really odd smell and realized pretty quick that it was propane. And so we had, uh, we had had our stove, we cleaned the stove the night before, the, the, um, the dial got bumped. So it was just pumping out gas all night long without this, praise the Lord, we were all fine. But we knew, okay, this is dangerous, we, we need to figure this out. And, and that's when I learned, and you guys probably know this, but that smell, that doesn't come standard with propane. Propane on its own doesn't have that smell. They add that smell so that you know if there is a propane leak. Pretty kind, right? And pretty smart. Because otherwise, it's, 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 uh, it's this invisible gas and you can't smell it. You would never know that it's there. Okay, well, faith in Christ is invisible, but it's really significant whether we have it or not. But it's invisible. Well, the Lord adds this symbol of baptism in part so you can detect your invisible faith in Christ. He gives it a physical representation. It's a visible symbol of an invisible reality. 
And here's another reason why, why your baptism should provide you with some measure of assurance is that you didn't baptize yourself. So someone else baptized you and, and that person baptized you on behalf of a church. And here's why that's encouraging. It, it means that a group of Christians saw evidence that you believe the one true gospel. They saw evidence of a changed life in you. And that's the way it's designed to work. So someone doesn't get baptized simply because they think they're a Christian or simply because their family members think they're a Christian. No, typically someone gets baptized because a church of people thinks they're a Christian. It's interesting, in Acts 10, Peter's preaching the gospel to a group of folks that he thinks he's seen really clear signs that they're Christians. He thinks he's seen the Holy Spirit work in them. But listen to what he asks this group of Christians around him during those events, before he baptizes these people. This is Acts 10, verse 46. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold baptism or can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? This is so interesting. Peter thinks he has seen work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. He's confident that these people are Christians. But what's interesting is he turns and he asks the other Christians around him. He leverages their witness as well to say, hey, you guys, you think we should baptize these people, right? And of course they do. And then that's when Peter baptizes them. But he's looking for that confirmation from other believers around them. So do you see those folks, those new Christians that are baptized, it's not just that they're relying on their own thoughts about themselves and whether they trusted in Christ. They're relying on this other group of Christians around them that has said, yes, we see fruit in you. We see this true belief in Christ in you. I'll give you, I'll give you an example from the last person in our church in Maine that, that we baptized before we left. Um, it was a, a young lady named Courtney that had grown up in our church. So her parents were members. I think Courtney was probably an infant when they got there. We knew Courtney when she was, I think, early middle school. And Courtney was always a great kid, pretty obedient, pretty good kid, fun to be around, pretty wise. So as she's growing at the church, she considered herself a believer. She was aiming to follow the Lord. But, but the group of Christians around her in the church, as Courtney got into high school in particular, and got a driver's license, and got to make her own friends, and kind of pick how to use her own time, and got a job, and all those sorts of things, the rest of us were kind of able to see, okay, with this newfound freedom, with the world kind of being offered to her, is she going to choose the world, or is she going to choose Christ? And the believers around Courtney, we got to see that, praise the Lord, Courtney continued to choose Christ, that when the world, the flesh, and the devil were offered to her, she, she wanted to turn away from those and, and trust in Christ. And so when Courtney was, was 19, our church baptized her. And Courtney can look back at that baptism and leverage it for assurance. I actually emailed back and forth with her this, this past week. She can leverage baptism as assurance because, because we didn't baptize Courtney simply because she thought she was a Christian or simply because her parents thought she was a Christian. We baptized Courtney because it was a church of people around her that said, yes, she's trusting in Christ. And she can look back on that baptism and, and gain assurance from it. But it can be easy. We should note this real quick. It can be easy to mess this up. So there, there's lots of churches today who, who baptize people probably earlier than they should. Now, we don't question their motives for that. We understand the motivation for that. We assume those motives are, are good. But, but here's what regularly happens. 
A church baptizes somebody who's not really a Christian. And then later on, this is worst case scenario, that person walks through the rest of their life thinking, I'm okay with the Lord because I was baptized. Now, as Christians, we hear that and we think that's crazy. But remember as a non-Christian, the kinds of crazy things you thought, right? I mean, when you're apart from the Lord, when you don't have the spirit, you think all sorts of crazy things and people will grasp at all sorts of nutty stuff to think they're okay with the Lord. And I'm telling you, that's one of them. So a lot of times that happens. The church baptizes somebody, they're not really a Christian. And then they walk through life thinking that they're okay. But the interesting thing here in this point that Paul makes versus like Galatians 3.27, we want this point to do what it's intended to do. So the Lord's intention is that every Christian should be able to look back at their baptism and leverage it for assurance. And that means that the churches around them were faithful and wise in the way they administered that baptism, that they didn't do it too early, that there was evidence there that this person really did trust in Christ. Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So for the Christian, for assurance, look back at your baptism. Just like you were put down into that water, you've been put in Christ through your faith in him. And just like that water washed your body, your sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ. Just as you came up out of that water, you have risen to new life as a new creature in Christ. So to gain assurance that you're God's child, look back at your baptism. Okay, the final point Paul has, but, but you might think, well, yeah, I'm trusting in Christ. And yeah, I've been baptized by the church. But my problem is I look around at other Christians. I just feel like they're better than I am. I just feel like I don't stack up. I'm discouraged because there's people that seem further along with the Lord than, than I am. Well, here's what you need to remember. It's the last thing Paul says, verses 28 through 29. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. As our final point this morning, remember that in Christ, we all have the same status. The last thing Paul tells us in chapter three, in Christ, we all have the same status. And this would be especially relevant for the Christians Paul was writing to you because many of them are Gentiles. And the Jews had been taught ever since they were little that Gentiles aren't as good as Jews. The Gentiles knew that. So now they're in a church with Jewish Christians too. It was going to be tempting for them to think those folks are God's real people. They're further along. I'm never going to be as far along as they are. Not only that, but they had the false teachers that were telling them exactly that thing. Basically, you have to become Jewish in order to become one of God's people. But look again at what the Lord tells us in our passage, verse 28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 28 doesn't mean these three human distinctions are literally done away with, right? We, we know that because even this last distinction, male and female, we know that distinction is not done away with because the Lord teaches us men and women have different roles in the church and in the family. He upholds those even, even as part of the Christian life. So gender is a good gift from the Lord. The Bible is really clear about that. We're not supposed to pretend that that's not a thing. Our culture continues to push that direction, but as the church, we want to say, no, that's not true. Gender is a good gift from the Lord. He created us. Jesus says it this way in Mark 10, from the beginning of creation, God made the male 
and female. So Paul isn't saying that we're supposed to ignore these categories, right, of gender. He's not saying we're supposed to pretend we all have the same uh, ethnicity, that we're supposed to ignore ethnic differences. He, he doesn't say that. He doesn't even want them to ignore the distinctions between slave and free there in the first century. He gives certain commands to folks that were free, certain commands for those who are slaves. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7.21, Paul tells Christians if they're slaves to gain their freedom if they can. So he has this recognition, and he intends that we have this recognition of, of these different distinctions. Okay, so, so what is Paul calling on us to ignore? If he doesn't want us to ignore these distinctions, what's he telling us to do? What he's telling us is even with these distinctions, we all have the same status in the body of Christ. That's the thing he's telling us. In the body of Christ, if you're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, we all have the same status. So you may have heard before, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all on the same footing. And the way Paul is leveraging this argument is, is to show that to be part of God's family, the Gentile doesn't have to become a Jew. She just has to come to Christ, right? He says the female doesn't have to become male. She just has to come to Christ. The slave doesn't have to become free. He just has to come to Christ. The Gentile is as adopted into God's family as the Jew is. Verse 29, and if you are Christ's and you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And by way of application, we, we want to be sure we're operating the same way the Lord is. So when there's a non-Christian who's interested in becoming a Christian, and we have the opportunity to interact with that guy or that gal and talk to them about what it means to become a Christian, how they become a Christian, well, we don't want to tell them they have to become our ethnicity. No, they simply have to come to Christ. We don't want to tell them you're going to have to dress and act like us. You know, you're going to have to adopt these so social cultural practices that we have. No, we're just telling them to come to Christ. We're not telling them to vote for our favorite political candidates. No, we're, we're telling them to come to Christ. The Jewish Christians were, were being tempted to tell the Gentile Christians, you need to look just like us and act just like us to be part of God's family. But the Lord's telling us that's not true. Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. But but this doesn't just have application for our expectations about non-Christians becoming Christians. It also has application for the way we think about our fellow church members right now, which is that, that right now, inside the church, we all have the same footing before the Lord. We, we all have the same status. So in the church, we're not supposed to make distinctions. The first century church was tempted to make distinctions between Jewish members and Gentile members, or slave and free or male and female. So, so what distinctions in our culture are we maybe tempted to make? Well, maybe, maybe with wealth, where there's more wealthy members and, and less wealthy members, or intelligence, members that are maybe seem more intelligent to us, members that have more of a normal intelligence, or maybe members that, that have the stage of life that we have, so we privilege those folks. Yeah, they're retired and I'm retired. They have young kids, I have young kids. So we privilege those folks that have our same stage of life. Maybe you privilege those who it seems you have a greater Christian maturity than others. It's easy to do, isn't it? To make these distinctions in the body of Christ, to privilege some over, over others. 
But again, what does Paul tell us? Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. So there's, there's neither smart nor less smart. There's neither wealthy nor less wealthy. There's neither young mom or retiree. It says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, it's definitely okay to have some church members that you're closer to than others, right? That's, that's inevitable to a degree. That's fine. But we want to be careful to not make distinctions in a way where we're overlooking part of the body of Christ. And I'll tell you a great way to work against that and to work toward unity is to pray for your fellow members. So that church directory that we handed out at the last church conference, which I've got more of, so if you didn't get one, come, come grab me. Pray through that directory. And don't just pray for folks that, that you think have particular needs. Just make it a practice to just pray through the thing, right? Whether you pray for one person a day or a family a day or one person every other day, but just systematically work through that directory and pray for one another. It's one of the best ways that the Lord uses to, uh, to build up unity in the body of Christ. You remind us we're all one in Christ Jesus. Because what we understand from this passage as we close, the, the differences among us are smaller than the Jesus who unites us, right? The, the Jesus that unites us is bigger than the differences that we have. So let me say it to you this way. So right now there's a Christian who's a slave in India. There's still slaves in lots of parts of the world. There's a Christian who's a slave in India, who's the opposite gender of you, lives in a cultural context that is completely different than your cultural context, speaks a different language than you. His or her daily life looks completely different from yours. It'd be hard to find two people in the world that, that look more different than you sitting here right now and this Christian in India sitting there right now. But as followers of Christ, you have more in common with that Indian Christian than you have in common with your own non-Christian sibling. Isn't that incredible? That's true. You have more in common with that person on the other side of the world that looks totally different from you than you have with your own non-Christian sibling or family member, or neighbor, or friend, because what you have in common with that Indian is Christ. And as a Christian, being in Christ is the most true and most significant and most consequential thing about you. And so there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. And of course, what Paul says here. It's tremendous evidence of the power of the gospel that Christ unites different kinds of people. The world is always trying to unite people. The world can never do it right. The world can unite people that are exactly the same. Those people are great united. The world can't unite people that disagree about things, that look different, that have different cultural contexts. But you know who can is Christ. And it shows the glory of the gospel that in Christ, Jew and Gentile come together. Slave and free come together. They're all one in Christ. Male and female come together. It's an incredible thing that he does. Rich and poor, black and white, different political persuasions, retirees and 20-year-olds. In our passage, Paul, Paul doesn't tell the Galatian Christians to pretend they don't have a gender or they're not slaves or they're not Gentiles. He just reminds them that the Jesus they share is bigger than these characteristics they don't. And, and it's the same for us. Praise the Lord. It shows the goodness, the glory of, of the gospel. So these are all things we're supposed to look at to gain assurance. You're God's child through faith alone and Christ alone. And, and when you pass through Christ, you are instantly justified from all your sins. 
You're as adopted as everybody else is in the church. The symbol of your baptism is in part for your assurance. In God's eyes, your sins were washed away, just like that literal water washed your body. And that washing of your sins and adoption into God's family happened the moment you first trusted in Jesus Christ. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's pray. And Father, we're so thankful that we've been brought to you through Christ. We understand that, that we could have never done anything to gain our status as your children. We weren't, weren't born into the world with that status, and, and we certainly couldn't achieve it. We're so thankful, Father, that it's through trust alone and Christ alone that our sins are forgiven and that we're brought close to you, that you're made our father. We're given a spiritual family, the church with brothers and sisters. And Father, we pray that when we are tempted to doubt our salvation, to doubt that our sins really are covered, we pray that we would look at these things, these places where Paul's directed our attention. Father, that we would be reminded that in Christ, we all have the same status. We're all fully adopted. We pray, Father, we'd look back at our baptism as a symbol of the gospel. And Father, we pray that we would remember that gospel and we would look at our faith in Christ, understanding it's only faith in Christ that has brought us close to you. Take a moment to, to pray that these truths would be pressed in on your heart by the Spirit. T take a few moments now to do that silently.